So, yes, as Rosie um, uh, was mentioning, I just got back from a two-week retreat with Michelle McDonald, Stephen Smith, Jesse Maceo Vega Fry, and Darine Magnoy at Hollyhock Retreat Center up on Cortez Island in British Columbia. And it's a really, really beautiful place. If you get a chance to go up there to practice or vacation or whatever, it's really nice. But being there on this 14-day retreat, in a way, I feel like I've just been through a kind of impermanence boot camp. So (laughs) maybe good preparation for this talk. I'm not so sure. You know, when you get back from a retreat, you're a little bit, "Mm -hmm." so I might be a bit like that. So the theme of the retreat was choiceless vulnerability. Which, I mean, how well does that fit in with our theme? Perfectly. But what was funny was that it wasn't really chosen beforehand, but it started almost as a kind of a joke. When just before the retreat was about to start, Michelle found that she wouldn't be able to come because she had a back injury and um, she just couldn't travel with that pain. And so... Things need to be things needed to be rearranged, and she decided that she would join us on Zoom instead. And uh, one of their partner teachers from Vipassana Hawaii, Jesse, came in her place. So you know, when we heard about that a couple of days before the retreat, it was a bit of a disappointment. But I think people generally adjusted to that. We're so used to being on Zoom anyway. But then there were more surprises. First, when Stephen Smith arrived, he was really exhausted and under the weather. And um, he had a stroke a while back. And so his health is a little bit iffy anyway. And it seemed that some of his injuries were causing a lot of problems. We later found out, you know, that he had COVID also, but... So after a couple of days, he decided he needed to go home to get medical care. So we lost another teacher. And then a couple of days later, when, you know, everyone tested themselves for COVID, we tested like right before the retreat to make sure everyone was negative before they got to Hollyhock. But then they we were we tested again a few days later just in case anyone was infected and it didn't show up. So when that happened, we found that Jesse was positive for COVID. So instead of teaching in person, he had to isolate in his cabin and give teachings over Zoom. So a couple of days after that, um, Darine, who'd been leading sits and doing interviews, started feeling sick. And even though she tested negative for COVID, she decided she'd better go home just in case she actually did have it. So with all of this, we were down to two teachers, both on Zoom. And everybody was at the retreat in person wearing masks, testing for COVID, some people staying in their rooms and joining on their computers. I mean, it was just pretty crazy. So talk about uncertainty, change, and vulnerability. I mean, it's like, what next, we kept thinking. 
But luckily, the outbreak was really well contained. There were only a couple of students that tested positive and went home. And it seemed like the people who got COVID were exposed to it on the float plane coming to Cortez Island. But the infection didn't really show up in their tests until a few days into the retreat. So, I mean, this was a really, really stressful thing for the teachers and the retreat manager who had to figure out how to keep things going. For most of us on the retreat, it wasn't so bad, really. But maybe because of the circumstances of a retreat and all of this weird stuff going on, it made us really sensitive about how subject all things are to change. Because at least for me, it was a retreat where change and impermanence and vulnerability and uncertainty really came up a lot in my meditation practice. And um, that's a good thing, really, since getting to know this characteristic of Anicca is so important. And maybe we were also more open to experiencing this impermanence because in the instructions we were really encouraged to use our meditation techniques to develop, you know, a certain amount of calm and stability of mind and then to really just allow things to unfold without trying to make anything particular happen, without any agenda, just seeing what arose in the body and the mind. And I think that attitude helped us to really, you know, kind of feel the uncertainty to enter into every moment with this sense of not knowing really what might happen. That's so much a part of Nietzsche. And so it was really, really a good retreat in that way. And I know for me, like, being able to have that level of openness isn't really always that easy to do. You know, this characteristic of Anicca, it's one of those things that it's, it's simple enough to understand on a certain level because we all know that things change and things are impermanent. But to really accept it on a deep level and to really feel it, <laughs> it's a lot harder. So today I'd like to talk a little bit about a few aspects of impermanence that are kind of things that are showing up in my own practice and I find myself working with and maybe that are showing up for you too. So first, there's that dukkha aspect of impermanence. And before I go any further, I should probably say that, of course, we know all change is not uh, unpleasant. In fact, we really welcome some change when an unpleasant or uncomfortable situation goes away or ends. And, you know, too, most of us like some change. And um, as long as the changes are relatively pleasant, we really like to experience new things. We're energized by novelty. It's kind of fun. It makes us feel alive. So maybe it's accurate to say we like change as long as it's on our own terms. <laughs> but other, certain other kinds of change, you know, the loss of what's dear to us and just the uncertainty and instability associated with permanent impermanence and change, those can be pretty painful and unsettling. 
And I wasn't able to listen to her talk because it isn't on the Sims website yet, but I understand that last week Suze talked quite a bit about that dukkha that arises because even when very pleasant things come into our lives, we can't hold on to them. And, you know, this is something that we often recognize in our lives as we experience loss, aging, sickness, death, and a really important understanding. And it's painful, but I think also brings us a greater appreciation of the beautiful things in our lives when we realize how fragile they are. But what I've lately been especially aware of, though, is more the dukkha that comes because things are just plain unstable. And that certainly was more of what came up in my retreat. You know, we the dukkha that we talked about last month is the Sankara dukkha. You know, this sense of things not being predictable. And this feeling that I can't be certain things are really going to turn out okay. That feeling could be about a big thing, like a friend or a relative with a serious health condition, or it might be a really tiny thing, like worrying about whether the bus is really going to come on time, because sometimes it doesn't, you know, just that feeling of anxiety and uncertainty. And so it's something that I've been noticing a lot in myself, I for sure felt it going up to my retreat because the whole process of getting there is an exercise in uncertainty. You have to take three ferries, and whereas you can make a reservation for one of them, the other two you can't, and they're small. And so if you get there a little bit late or if it's especially crowded, you might miss that ferry, and then your whole schedule will be screwed up. So there's, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know, I don't know, am I going to get there? that kind of thing before the retreat even started. So aware of that kind of uncertainty. And then I've also been noticing more of the things I do to try to get away from it or to help myself feel that things are really stable and predictable the way that I would want them to be even. And as I, you know, probably deep down feel like they ought to be, even though, that really isn't the way things are. So just like the grief of losing what we love is a big and difficult area of practice, I think dealing with this truth of uncertainty is a pretty big one too. You know, simply allowing ourselves to feel it is no small thing. And it's kind of, for me, like working with the other hindrances, with anger or craving or restlessness or whatever, you know, being really willing to make space for the anxiety that comes with not knowing and to stop resisting it, letting ourselves feel it in the body, seeing where the mind goes when it arises and just, you know, letting it come and go according to its own conditions and to refrain from reacting to get away from it when we can, which we can't always refrain from, you know, and at least if we can't see where we're going to distract ourselves and to escape. So we can work on developing some 
equanimity, you know, that knows, well, yes, this is unpleasant, but this is the way it is right now. But I can be with it. And I think as we practice, we find more and more we can be with it. And our formal meditation practice really helps with this, I think, because it puts us in a situation where we will feel that kind of changeability and permanence and unpredictability. I mean, we're bound to sooner or later if we just sit there and pay attention to what's going in our bodies and our minds. But our ability to distract ourselves isn't quite so great. The mind can definitely create its own distractions. There's no question about that when the feelings become too uncomfortable. But at least we can't get up and turn on the TV or check our phone, you know. So we're a little bit more limited, you know. And that's really good. So working with it in meditation and then working with it in daily life, I've been thinking about that too. And one thing is being more willing to put myself into situations where there is some uncertainty and where I might feel anxiety because I'm not sure how it's going to go. You know, nothing dangerous, but more like something that's unfamiliar, something I'm not sure I know how to do. You know, not all the time, but, you know, in a way that sort of counteracts that tendency to have a pattern of avoidance and distraction whenever the uncertainty comes up. Or maybe when it comes up, being willing to just stop for a moment before I turn on the TV or open a book or get a snack or start cleaning or start planning or whatever, or creating some sort of a scenario in my mind where everything will turn out right um, to kind of reassure myself and just be with the feeling for a while and then go ahead and do what needs to be done. So it's sort of building up tolerance to accept and be with uncertainty. You know, that's one aspect of practicing with Anicca. And then another thing I've been thinking about, maybe partly because we're getting ready next month to talk about uh, anatta or not-self, is that um, this noticing this characteristic of impermanence is a really nice way to kind of ease into that characteristic of anatta. And I think people often feel like it's the most baffling and difficult you know, the dukkha and anicca might be hard to accept, but they're not so hard to understand. Well, anatta or not self can seem really mysterious. But noticing impermanence can really be a help. You know, when we start to notice impermanence and the things we think of as me, you know, we can see this on daily life. You know, when we reflect on all the changes we've gone through from birth to where we are now, you know, thinking that little baby in the photo (laughs) from so long ago or that teenager, you know, where are they now? (laughs) We're not those people anymore. And we can see it maybe in the roles that we play in society of change, the jobs we don't have anymore. Maybe we've transitioned from being the parent of a small child to someone whose kids are grown and on their own, from being a husband or wife to being divorced or widowed, so many changes. And especially in our meditation practice, we can see how 
changeable and impermanent those thought patterns and emotions that we think of as me can be. So if you want to understand anatta, a good place, I think, is to start noticing impermanence in these kinds of things, you know. And through that, we might get a sense of what we think of as myself isn't quite as solid or as continuous or as permanent as we thought. We're going to talk a lot more about this next month, but I thought it might be something to bring up because you can consider it a bit this month as you explore impermanence. And then finally, I wanted to say something about the importance of understanding impermanence as part of the path to liberation. So the three characteristics are often spoken of as like doors or gateways to deeper Dharma understanding. And really seeing the truth of one or more of these characteristics for ourselves based on our own experience can really change our practice from you know, if we'd been thinking of it as more like a way to relax or reduce our stress a bit or maybe an interesting philosophy, when we start to actually see these characteristics, it can, you know, bring the practice to a level of something much deeper. And impermanence might be one of the especially important characteristics for a lot of people in this process. We know that when he taught about the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha first pointed out the truth of dukkha. And then in the second Noble Truth, he says that the underlying cause of dukkha, which we all feel, this dukkha of unsatisfactoriness and suffering, is craving. You know, craving to think for things to be other than the way they are, reaching for and clinging to things that we want, but they never seem to really sustain us for long, even though we feel like if we could just get them, we'd finally be happy. And then the third noble truth says that the cessation of dukkha comes with the sensation, cessation of craving. But how do we get there to this sense, cessation of craving? And I think we all know that it doesn't happen simply by our force of will. We don't just say, oh, okay, I'm supposed to stop craving. Okay, I'm not going to do it. It just doesn't happen that way. We can't just grit our teeth and say, okay, I'm not going to do it because I'm not supposed to do it. And it doesn't happen through some sort of, you know, moral judgment either, really. I don't think of this is bad, so I can't. It really happens through understanding. And there are various ways we can get there to giving up that constant struggle to get and to hold on to what we think will make us happy. And one way is through the truth of dukkha, which we talked about last month, where we recognize how painful it is to keep reaching and grasping and clinging and we let go because it's just not worth it. And another is through this truth of anicca or impermanence, through recognizing that there's nothing we can cling to anyway. You know, as soon as we grab onto it, it's gone or it's changed. And while we might long for something, with the uncertainty of each moment, we really can't make it happen in the way we imagine it should happen because we don't really know quite what might arise. 
And there are different ways, too, that we get to this understanding. Part of it comes from experiences of change and loss in our daily lives, if we're really willing to accept them and reflect on them. And part of it comes through our meditation practice, where we really can see impermanence on a moment-to-moment level if we look closely at our processes of body and mind. And just how we experience this is going to be different from person to person. There's no one way or no right way. And we probably all experience it in multiple ways and multiple times before the understanding really sinks in. We might see it in all the ways our body experience changes as we sit, even over a relatively short time. You know, we might feel stillness and then pulsing and then tingling and then heat and then aching. We might feel pleasure and comfort comfort in one sitting. And then in the next, the whole time we're plagued with body pain. Our experience is changeable and unpredictable. And when it comes to the mind, we really don't know what thoughts and images and emotions might appear. And they might change so quickly we barely even recognize them. Some people might experience this change on such an intense and rapid level they feel like their whole world is falling apart around them. Or it might be milder, but enough to produce a kind of sense of chaos or uncontrollability that's not very settling. Or it might be a feeling of noticing endings, endings, endings. Whatever arises, it ends. Nothing lasts. Or maybe it might be that what's felt most clearly is the silence into which all these changing phenomena fall into, from which they arise and to which they return. But however it occurs, it gives us a sense that no, things don't last. And we really don't know for sure what might happen next. And if that's the case, it just doesn't make any sense to crave and cling because we can't hold on to what's already changing. And we can't make something happen when what arises is so uncertain. So seeing this is really an important insight. When we start to see this truth of impermanence, the mind stops its reaching, its craving, its clinging, and the third noble truth is realized. But of course, it isn't necessarily as clean and simple as that. You know, it's to say this, it sounds like it's one and done, but I think for most of us, that isn't the way it is. It takes a while to really see through our delusions. To begin with, the mind is really resistant to seeing and feeling this impermanence and uncertainty and vulnerability. So when these things start to become too evident in our life and our practice and we feel them too strongly, there's a lot of times some pushback or reaction. We might ignore or deny or try to distract ourselves, you know, frantically try to make ourselves feel secure by doing all sorts of planning and actions We might get angry and look for someone to blame because things have changed. And in our meditation practice, 
this deep insight into impermanence might be so jarring that the meditator is just overwhelmed and is like, oh, whoa, this is too much for me. I'm out of here. You know, kind of a rolling up the mat phase. Although I think the mat isn't going to stay rolled up forever because, you know, at that point, the person, they know too much to really stop practicing. Or maybe it isn't that dramatic, but at some point the mind feels like what it's seen is too much to handle and it will just disrupt the experience with thoughts about it or maybe with a story or a fantasy or whatever, or just, you know, a feeling of, ah, <laughs> enough. And all this is really normal and natural. And one of the things the teacher stressed in my recent retreat was that the mind does these things to protect us, even if this protection isn't really needed. And so rather than seeing these strategies as bad or wrong, to really see them with interest and understanding and patience. You know, it's just like the mind is really trying to put some order into an unordered situation. So to let these things happen and let the exploration proceed at its own pace without trying to force everything. And then, too, the roots of these habits really run deep. So even when we kind of, quote, unquote, know better, there's still going to be lots of times when we get caught up in our craving and clinging and need to control things. But even if our understanding is partial and incomplete, still, you know, we, we see, we've seen something. And the third noble truth is realized, maybe just in one moment. And then in the next moment, we're caught again in our craving. But still, for that moment, it was realized. And so we understand something about the changeability of things, a little bit more about the limits of our control. And we might find that we're a little bit less compulsive about trying to get what we want, a little less convinced that it's going to solve all of our problems. Although, of course, you know, sure, it would be nice to have it. And when something pleasant happens, maybe instead of trying to figure out how to hang on to it, we might just feel gratitude and appreciation. Because on some level, we know that it just doesn't make sense to worry too much about keeping it or getting it back because it really isn't something we can control. And we may find we're a little bit more content with things as they are and a little less preoccupied with things as we think they should be. We let go in this moment, maybe in another moment, and little by little, we understand what they mean when they say, all conditions, things arise and pass away. Knowing this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. So let's just sit together for a few moments. So thank you all for listening. And now we have some time for our small group discussion. Okay, it looks like everybody is back. <laughs> Welcome back. Hope you had a good and interesting uh, conversation. And now um, there's some time for uh, sharing with our larger group here. Anything that came up, you know, in your small groups or any questions you would like to ask or any comments you might have, please feel free 
you can raise your virtual hand or um, there's not too many of us so you might just be able to raise your actual hand so I know that you have something to say. So you're welcome to begin anytime. It amazes me that that we're so surprised at impermanence. It's it's there all the time. Yeah. Surprises me. <laughs> Do you want to elaborate a little bit more, Rosie? No, that <laughs> I'm just shocked at my own mind and, and the everybody's mm-hmm. mind. That what is so obvious and is happening, you know, you know, be at my age I've gone through a lot of impermanence. <laughs> and it can yeah, I, I see what you're you're saying, I mean, in the sense that it's kind of shocking that our minds are so not wanting to see something that's so obvious. At least that's what I, I sort of feel sometimes. It's like, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, it's. But there is a resistance that's more than just kind of a ideas in your mind it's sort of this gut level no we want everything to save it's funny and it is odd it's very odd when you think about it you know the mind is a really weird thing <laughs> that is true. If, that is if meditation true. has taught me nothing else it's just the mind is a really weird thing <laughs> so thank you yeah i don't know it seems to me that um in the last hundred years or so you know, science has totally confirmed, you know, the impermanence of everything, you know, whether it's geology, astronomy or whatever, everything is confirmed um, impermanence, you know, but it still seems to me like a brilliant insight 2,500 years ago, you know, when the mountains were, you know, seeming so stable and everything like that. I, I still think it's, it was a, you know, brilliant uh, observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is, I mean, really, one of the things I feel about the Buddha when you look into his teachings is, wow, what a brilliant man. What yeah. a brilliant mind he had yeah. to see these things and articulate them in such a clear way. Yeah. It, is, it is amazing. I agree. I was um, kind of talking about growing up and thinking, I think it might have to do with our consumerism a little bit because we need to buy things and we need to believe that those will bring us happiness. So there's a lot of um, mythology kind of that we're taught that if you get this job and if you buy this thing, and you get this thing like a house and a job with good money and status, you will be happy. And then there's all this advertising that shows all these happy people. And I know when I was growing up, 
I really thought there was a plateau, that if you got those things, you'd get to that plateau, and that was the happy plateau, and you lived happily ever after. And then I saw people who were at that plateau, and I bought into the to the kind of vision. And there were all these sitcoms and movies with these happy endings and fairy tales, you know, lived happily ever after, that I really thought there was this happily ever after and it kind of goes along with the if only I had that so there is a even though as Rosie said and as you said Stuart about science and just aging we obviously see that there is so much impermanence it's more pleasurable to think about that permanent happiness, that permanent resolution. Um, you know, maybe it's cognitive dissonance or something like that. We we want our brain will go with the thing that makes us happier to look at. Um, so anyway, and the other thing I was thinking about along those same lines as far as our culture is that, you know, we don't have... Um, a lot of ceremonies for initiation for change, which other cultures have had, like they would have um, in puberty, they would have the initiation for um, moving from childhood towards adulthood. And there was more honoring of change and more connection to nature so that it was part of one's mindset. And I just think our, our society has gone kind of crazy in the, other direction. Good point. Mm -hmm. It is a good point. I mean, in a way, our society doesn't want to acknowledge beyond a certain point. We don't want to acknowledge aging, for example. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Although at the same time, I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying, Lauren, but there's also, it, I, it, the, I thought came up for me that in another way it goes deeper than cultural conditioning. If you think back to the time of the Buddha, they're still dealing with it. But our society really, as you say, encourages the tendency not to, to the encourages the tendency to, to feel like if I just get what I want, I'll be happy, maybe even more than most. Yeah. Well, there's a possibility to get what you want in our society. You know, so many places they're just stuck, whatever they have. But I, I'm just looking well, at you're right. yeah, that's yeah, true. I'm, I'm just looking out at the tree. I'm on my deck and looking at the trees, and the you know, right now the weather's so mild and. It's just, it's just glorious. Just, just glorious at the moment. When you said that kind of brought this up, like we have very confusing ceremonies and like grad, it's graduation time right now. And, oh, right. and one way we're celebrating, like getting these incredibly expensive degrees but then we also like muddle it with all the emotions and the raising of these kids and the things. And it's very interesting how we, how we do that in some way. Like our, I mean, maybe part of it is taking advantage of the things that we do have and putting a little bit more of that kind of like 
bigger, I don't know, kind of like thank, thank, you know, thanking the, the impermanence of like childhood is gone now for these kids and, and for, for us who raised them and stuff, but it's sort of in, interesting, but it's so like, it's all about the job now they're going to get after this <laughs> like big expensive mm-hmm. education and stuff. So it's like, we have a very complex society somehow that we need to navigate. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Because there is a lot you know, there's birthdays and there is graduation, like you said, and marriages and funerals, you know, so we still have that. Yeah. But what you're saying is that they're, um, they're kind of connected to some confusing and maybe not very fulfilling or deep or spiritual. (laughs) Um, well, they're just so loaded. I mean, we kind of go there and we see all these like, you know, divorced families that have to kind of come together and do these things. And, but then, mm-hmm. you know, then we do it, you know, and sort of, it's kind of, and acknowledging that they're a thing for like our, you know, our, some kind of ceremony for our society to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But maybe not as uh, satisfying as one might hope because of all these complications. I think along those lines, something that I've, I think I've become more aware of recently is that once you graduate college and you start working, there isn't a whole lot of separation from the, the, for different phases of your life once you start working. Mm-hmm. Like when you're in school, you have lower school and that ends and then middle school, high school, college. And then you start working and then you're just working and there's <laughs> things going on in your life, but like there's no like partitioning. It feels like things really just start to blend together. And I think it can be easy to sometimes just lose track of like what's going on in your life because you don't have these easier kind of like markers or milestones, um, which, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's something I didn't realize would be kind of a bit of a challenge in some ways. Yeah, I never thought about that. And then there's retirement. <laughs> well, I recommend look- that one. Yeah, oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> me too. Yeah. Well, it looks like we're getting toward the end of our time, so I should probably go ahead and um, do announcements.